Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Chris Dolan. Chris Dolan is a writer who has worked on games including Mark of the Ninja and Carmen Sandiego for Facebook and has written for magazines including Variety, Pitchfork, and The Onion AV Club. Please give a very warm welcome to Chris Dolan. Hey, how's it going? Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming out tonight. I'm sure many of you are interested in video games in some capacity. Uh, we're here to talk about games and learning, but not just games in an educational context, but sort of getting into, like, how do games help us learn? What is there about games that is involved in learning? What are they doing to our minds as we play them? And we have a wonderful panel here to speak to that. And I'll introduce them, um, starting with Professor James G, uh, linguist at Arizona State University's Mary Lou Fulton Teacher College, and the author of uh, kind of a seminal text in games and learning, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. And so, uh, Professor G. <laughs> We have uh, Professor Kavari Subramanyam, who's a professor of psychology at California State University, LA, and associate director of the Children's Digital Media Center at Los Angeles at UCLA and CSULA. Uh, and last but not least, we have uh, Richard Lamarchand, a game designer best known for the uh, sensational Uncharted games uh, for PlayStation. Uh, he was a designer with Naughty Dog. He is now a visiting associate professor at the USC Interactive Media Division, just wrapping up his first semester there. And so, warm wel welcome to Richard. So, I thought I'd get us, get us off started uh, talking about so games and learning. I think. If you talk to someone who's kind of a curmudgeon about games, their idea of someone who's playing a video game on their iPhone or, or whatever uh, console is of someone kind of you know, wasting their time, kind of zoning out. They're involved in this activity. They've got kind of this blank look on their face, maybe a little drool on their chin. And <laughs> you know, this is a stereotype. It's just this sort of, they're like, oh, you're just wasting your time. And I think from, from conversations we've just been having that there's actually a lot of mental activity going on when you play a game, especially a new game that you've never experienced before, that you're sort of starting to get used to how it works. And I thought I'd start us off kind of talking about that. What, what does a game do with your mind when you start playing it? And maybe, maybe James, I'll start, start off with you. Well, first of all, I'd like to say you could be wasting your time just <laughs> as you could with a book. It depends what you do with it. And you know, I think that people who read a book like they've written the book, like they're writers, are reading at a deep level, and people who play a game like they're designing it, that mm -hmm. is, you're thinking, what is this designed for, and how can I leverage it to my own purposes, are getting a lot out of that game. Uh, but you could get little out of it if you don't think like a designer. Um, Games, I think, are essential for learning because what they, they do is they, they are designed experiences. And they're designed experiences of a very certain sort that is an experience which you are going to have and in which you have to take an action to reach a goal. And why that's important is that current work in the learning sciences and on neuroscience argues that human beings primarily learn through experience. We don't learn through abstractions and calculations alone. We learn through finding patterns in our experience. But experience for humans is not effective for learning unless in that experience you are going to take an action that has consequences to you. Mm -hmm. um, because that organizes the experience for you and makes you find patterns in it. Games essentially are externalizing the best forms of learning that humans used to have to do just internal to their head. 
if you think about it, we thought books were good for vicarious experience. Mm -hmm. But in fact, games are vicarious experience that are organized around problem solving and action taking, which is where humans are at their best when in, for learning. Mm -hmm. And Kaveri, you've done research on, on, I mean, like even specific skills you've seen people like gain with. Um, I wonder if you could give us a couple examples. Like you've, you've looked into spatial reasoning for one. That's right. We've, uh, some of my early work was done in visual spatial skills. This is, you know, a pretty broad range of skills that includes uh, um, estimating the trajectory of, uh, of uh, objects, it's estimating distance, mm -hmm. speed of uh, objects, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. a lot of spatial representational skills. And what we found with some very early generation of games was that repeated short-term practice did produce immediate short-term gains on what I call fundamental cognitive processes like spatial skills. Mm -hmm. Other people have done work on divided attention, uh, there's work on um, um, uh, selective attention. There's also work on uh, estimating the probability of events on a video game screen. You know, those are you know immediate short-term gains. There's also some work on uh, video games that has shown preliminary evidence that um, there is there might be some gains in executive function skills. Mm -hmm. And executive function skills, I think of as literally the chief executive of the brain, mm -hmm. uh, and it's the it's the part it's the skills that re regulate other processing skills. So how do you decide when to allocate resources, what to focus on, what to inhibit, what to pay attention to, what to ignore? Mm -hmm. So there is some evidence now. I think the the bigger question for me really is whether the short-term uh, results that we find in the lab, whether mm -hmm. they generalize to, you know, and you would assume that if you, if you find short-term gains, you would also find long-term gains. Right. We don't have the experimental evidence to suggest that. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's really the big question. But you're clearly seeing, yeah, the brain, at least in that session, it's expanding. And I mean, we, we were talking about this, like, uh, you know, the game designer, Raf Koster, had the theory of fun, and that the, mm -hmm. what is fun is that you're learning, that you're being mm -hmm. challenged, that your brain is working. And um, I was interested in something, you were talking about with attention in games, and about what holds your attention in something, like that the gameplay, these systems, are what kind of pull you in. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, that's something, this subject of, uh, of attention, which is a, a mm -hmm. specialty of yours, is something that I got interested in recently mm -hmm. when I was trying to understand how games uh, draw us into their systems that we can mm -hmm. then begin to learn about and, and explore. I mean, uh, game designers often think of the player uh, as, a, as a kind of scientist, I think, mm -hmm. uh, exploring the mm -hmm. world, uh, forming hypotheses, mm -hmm. uh, conducting experiments uh, mm -hmm. through, that, through the actions that they take in the game world to either confirm or, or deny those hypotheses and then, you know, mm -hmm. extending their theories further. And as someone who spent a lot of time designing, especially especially the early parts of video games, where the game is essentially teaching itself to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that kind of model is, is very useful. And so to think about the player's attention as mm -hmm. this kind of flighty thing that you can kind of grab and hold in order to draw them into this structured learning experience, I think is a, a, a productive approach and one that we've really only just begun to look at. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I come from, a, I've worked on some educational games and they weren't all great. Uh, and I know we all have memories of these like math blaster type things. It's sort of like that the game is just the sugar coating over the lesson that they're really trying to get you to learn. But kind of what we've been talking about is some of these things where it's like the skill itself is something you're getting from the game, either that you're understanding some model because you have to work with it or you're understanding some experience because you're immersed in it. I mean, is that sort of what we're, what we're looking at? Like, that's what we'd really be after with games well, and learning. to pick up what Richard said is, you know, Will Wright has this wonderful comment where he said what a kid is doing when he's playing a video game is making a model in his head of the game. I mean, mm -hmm. game is a complex system of interacting roles. 
a good player is trying to build a model of that system in their head so they can leverage it for their own purposes, even mm -hmm. to get emergent results out of it. Now that type of model building is the fundamental of the science. The science and really all knowledge building is fundamentally about building models. Mm -hmm. And so it, again, that's why I stress that uh, if you're thinking like a designer as you play, means that you are thinking, what can I do with the interaction of these roles? Um, and game designers can make that very, very deep. Mm -hmm. To follow up on something Richard said, you know, the, the whole idea of, um, you know, the des game designers think of the players as having a hypothesis like the scientists, mm -hmm. I, it just struck me, it's very interesting because in, you know, most, uh, you know, child development and education and psychology, developmental mm -hmm. psychology, we talk about Piaget's theory yes. and, he t and for him, the child was a little scientist experimenting on the world. So if you look at fundamental theories of how you develop knowledge, you know, the, the, the goal is the child is an active learner and through his or her experimentation builds his knowledge. So I found that very interesting that you said that. It's funny in these kinds of design talks, I often find that we can move from discussing the player of a video game to just talking about a human being. Right. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes me so excited about video games, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as this burgeoning art form. Um, which has at its core uh, systems, system dynamics. We were talking the other day about what is the fundamental skill at the, at the heart of video games, and I really do believe that it's uh, systems design. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're surrounded by systems in the world, Some, the systems of the physical world, whether it's an electron or a fern growing in a forest, and then the design systems of architecture, public transport all around us. Uh, because of this essential systemic character of games, I think they offer us a lot of unique opportunities for yeah. modeling the world mm -hmm. in the way that you yeah, describe it. Yeah, and people have argued that they can be particularly good for so-called 21st century skills, of which complex system thinking is mm -hmm. one, thinking of how complex systems uh, in, interact with each other and how variables interact within them is a core 21st century skill. So is innovation, so is the ability to think like designer, so, uh, and certainly so is collaboration. And of course, games have become a really central part of collaboration. So they're kind of a, a, a platform for 21st century skills. I liked what you just said about emergence, actually, um, because, of course, if a game is too predictable in, this, in the scientist explorer way, uh, it stops being interesting to mm -hmm. us, or it stops holding our attention, perhaps. Uh, and um, whether we're looking at, uh, you know, making um, a car do something amazing in a game of uh, um, uh, uh, a game of Halo, for instance, mm -hmm. to do a big flip off the cliff and jump out mid-flight and have something special spectacular happen. That's a, a kind of unpredictable emergent phenomenon of the kind that players love the most. Um, but of course, often emergent phenomena in the real world is disastrous in some sense. So again, <laughs> games might be really great ways for us to explore the world around us in both its predictability and its unpredictability. I like that uh, someone told me the phrase, failure, failure is acceptable. Failure is an option mm -hmm. in games. Right. You have that right. safety net. Yes, yes, yes. I think. Yeah. In well, I mean, failure is required for people to take risks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the troubles in school is that failure is too consequential. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you can lower the cost of failure, you get exploration. People will try different styles. They will take the risks, and otherwise they won't. They get into this tunnel vision. It, it's interesting. Modern workplaces, though, now are very big into failure. The motto mm -hmm. of IDO, one of the biggest design and uh, consulting companies in the world, is mm -hmm. fail early, fail often. Get it out of the way. <laughs> and uh, it, it's really only in our some of our kind of throwback institutions, like many of our schools, that we still have this complete fear of failure. Well, let's make it a little concrete. Like, what do you? What would be some 
games that you've seen in, in educational games or any kind of game that you think sort of teaches, like provides some of these systems that are stimulating, that you've seen work with kids or that sort of provide that kind of engagement? Well, I think, you know, you can, there's a lot of them that do this. Civilization certainly does mm -hmm. it for people. Again, mm -hmm. how you play it, Portal has done it, Minecraft has done it. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the current games that are more along the line of art are getting people to think in completely new ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Fez did that, and, I, you know, they're really playing with, are there other ways to see experience and see the world? We, I think we've hit 1% of this, of what, mm -hmm. we, uh, what we could do. But, you know, any game, even first-person shooters, uh, are still by, uh, there are still games in which you have to manage the executive attention you have in very strategic ways. You have to do probabilistic ratings mm -hmm. of what the patterns are very quickly. We know from neuroscience now this is actually very good even for your math sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably a disappointment to the people who didn't like violent video games that they are turning out to be quite good for you cognitively. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's so be it. But um, I also think we haven't even begun to design the games that can have their full effect. To me, this is a very new form. Mm -hmm. My question to both of you is, to what extent do you think the learning that takes place in the game context mm -hmm. generalizes when you get out of the game? I mean, I think that's a very good question. Um, uh, and I would say that the answer is very dependent on the game in question. Because, of course, we have a tendency to talk about video games as this one monolithic thing. Um, but that's like saying, you know, that books are just one thing. Right. Where you have everything from the Encyclopedia Britannica to uh, a collection of E. Cummings poems. So uh, I think it would depend on the game. I mean, a couple of games that popped into my head in answer to your question, Chris, about uh, what kinds of things can we learn from games. I was lucky enough at a recent game design conference uh, at NYU uh, in New York at the Game Center there to be able to see um, uh, a, a presentation by the lead game designer of the new SimCity game. Mm. And SimCity, right. Sim uh, yes. the game des originally designed by Will Wright, is this wonderful kind of city, city building simulation mm -hmm. game um, uh, where you can do all kinds of interesting experiments and they're hard at work on the mm -hmm. latest iteration mm -hmm. of this game, uh, which will, I think, have all the all our favorite elements of the old game, but is doing some very interesting new things with software agents, these little semi-autonomous um, people yeah, yeah. in cars <laughs> and resources that will move uh, around the city. And so. evidently they're going to show you for everything you build the model that was under it so that you can actually manipulate the representations, which is, we know if, if they keep this as a feature, as a great mm -hmm. feature of learning, if you show mm -hmm. somebody a representation and show what's happening and you can change mm -hmm. one and see immediately what happens in the this is very facilitatory for right. learning abstract concepts, and uh, so that could be a real, uh, a real opener. I think in this transfer question, mm -hmm. though, I mean, there has been some of the neuroscience work is showing some relatively long-term transfer in some of the mental skills, mm -hmm. but I think there's a deeper sense of transfer, but we don't know, see it all the time because right. games are not just software. Any mm -hmm. good game has a community built around it of people who take that game further. They critique it. They, you know, think of World of Warcraft. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you have people theory crafting, you have people modding, you have people critiquing. You have the world's most complicated customer complaint letters, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sent in by the uh, players, you know, statistical models of the game. And, Take that! You screwed. Right. You know, you screwed my shaman. Um, <laughs> but you know, you could you could have published it in a psych journal. Um, <laughs> and and so you. But with the game is both the game, the software, and then this what people have called the meta game around mm -hmm. it. 
And I think both educational game designers, but even entertaining, entertainment game designers, beginning to realize you are designing an experience in the software, but you're also designing the opportunity for a community of people to begin to get new skills, some of which do not happen uh, in the game. They happen in the theory crafting or they happen in the Minecraft mm -hmm. discussions. So you have transfer there in the sense of people legitimately changing their identity, developing new interests. Mm -hmm. um, that is a very deep thing and probably very facilitatory again for 21st century skills and abilities. Uh, one question, so tr by transfer we're talking about transferring the skills you have in a game to your school experience to the tests you have to take, or even just right. transfer to life, transfer to... Any offline context yeah. outside the game. Okay. And I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't jump in and, and blow uh, uh, Naughty Dog's horn a little <laughs> bit. Uh, Naughty Dog is the name of the studio that I worked for for eight years uh, uh, until I left to join USC, which makes the Uncharted series of games. Uh, and at Naughty Dog, we had this uh, concept of the Google test that we wanted the Uncharted games to be able to pass. So the Uncharted games are kind of contemporary versions of pulp adventure uh, for a modern video game audience, drawing on the works of Robert Louis Stevenson, um, the adventures of Doc Savage, and all of those great 30s and 40s B-feature serials and, and adventure movies. And every one of these games has at the heart of its story uh, a true-to-life historical mystery um, that we wanted people to be able to Google and learn more about because we'd always had this idea that if we could provoke people's curiosity about history, mm -hmm. about geography, you know, human culture, then we'd be, um, uh, you know, creating some, making possible some kind of transference at least from our game to, you know, people's lives outside of, the, of it. You know, there's a paradox with transfer this way because we keep saying that transfer school ought to transfer to life. That's its right. point. Mm -hmm. But then when we get something like games that transfer to life, we ask whether they transfer to school, to whether it makes you better at taking a test. But it, right. it, the fact of the matter is they should be out there making you better at manipulating the complex world we live in, not getting better at a skill and drill test. Right, right. Um, it, it, at the, you know, one, I, one thing that reminds me of what you're saying with the Google test, something that interests me about when we talk about these systems and models, they're, um, they're really provocative and you can do a lot with that and, and you can especially teach, you know, there's some games like uh, the game Space Chem is excellent for teaching programmers because it models parallel computing or parallel processing. It models these skills and, and gives you these insanely complicated problems to solve that are actually really fascinating and you feel really good when you finish one. It's such an um, amazing game. It's such an amazing <laughs> yeah. game. Um, and you, but you always think of these models as being these kind of contained systems. I think like the Civilization series is a good example that like it'll teach you a lot about life, but whenever life gets in the way of the gameplay, the gameplay wins. So right. I'll have a game where like Gandhi and Bismarck are, are fighting together, and that's <laughs> and, uh, against Caesar, <laughs> and that's okay. And they all have horses, and it's all you know. So. You, you, it interests me though. When we, so you know, we know that sometimes it's going to be like that. But it interests me the ways that we can kind of bring in some of the messiness of, of real life into into but, these. But situations. that could be a good thing. You know, Kurt Squire at the University of Wisconsin did a lot mm -hmm. of work using civilization to teach history, and people would mm -hmm. say, "Well, you know, uh, history is about what happened." Mm -hmm. That's not true. History is about explaining what happened. And one of right. the best ways to explain what happened is to figure out how it could have happened differently. Uh, you know, he, his initial group of kids, which were relatively poor kids in a community center, 
um, all wanted to play Native Americans, and they weren't very interested in history in the beginning, but they all knew their Native Americans would get colonized by the Spanish and didn't want that to happen to mm -hmm. their kids. So they went and, for the first time, picked up their history book and used it as a cheat sheet to find out when this would happen, and then asked themselves what would stop it. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of things that would, don't kill off the megafauna, because then you would have had a horse, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, get technology going earlier. And right. that's history. That's history as mm -hmm. a discipline. Um, so it's fine they all have horses. Too bad the Indians didn't. Right. You were right. History, as, as a history major myself, history <laughs> only gets interesting when you actually look at the mm -hmm. questions that haven't yeah. been answered. But a lot of kids don't necessarily know yeah. to ask questions. Right. So if you can get them thinking that way. Yeah. Um, some of the, you know, we're talking about this. One thing I'm interested in is like the, the identification, too. The fact that like a game might give you a chance for... And I know this is a tricky thing. We've talked about how this is tricky, but it give you a different experience, put you in someone's shoes. Uh, and there, you know, there are limits on it, but one, one example recently was uh, Merit Coppice, who's a teacher, um, mm. so, has a sociology class, mm -hmm. and she brought in the game uh, Dysphoria as one mm -hmm. of her texts. And mm -hmm. this is a game by the transgender game designer Anna Anthropy, uh, who also wrote an amazing book. If you have any interest at all in games, go read it. It's mm -hmm. Rise of the Video Game Zinesters. It's a fantastic book. book. Yeah, it's yeah. such a good read. I recommend um, it to everyone. Yeah, so, she's, so she made a game about being a transgender woman and about her experience and sort of part of her transition six months in her life. And the game was really effective for students. Uh, it was effective in a different way than if there had been like a movie or a book about, about the same experience. And I want to read her quote. She said, because dysphoria requires, this is the teacher, uh, Merit Coppice, because dysphoria requires active participation by the player, it draws them into the logic of a system bigger than the individual. That means you don't just read a book and it's the hero's story of overcoming these people who were putting you down or causing obstacles, that they saw it as more of a system of like, how do you live in this situation and what happens to you? And so what I took from that, though, it was effective at sort of expo you know, bringing people into the life of someone like in a different way than if it had been a memoir or something like that. And I wonder, I wonder if you think there's, um, that that's a possibility, that that's something that, the, that these games can do. Well, I mean, I think it's unquestionably uh, something that uh, seized our imaginations a few decades ago now, mm -hmm. uh, maybe even as early as the 1930s when mm -hmm. uh, Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World and imagined these feelies, these kind of uh, sensorily immersive uh, uh, media experiences. But mm -hmm. certainly when um, uh, we get to, uh, um, you know, sort of modern thinking, post-cyberpunk thinking about mm -hmm. interactive experience, about being able to enter a simulated world where we can take action with consequence, it definitely seems to offer new artistic opportunities, new opportunities for training uh, and learning. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, there are really many open questions about the tension between a, uh, maybe a model and a simulation, something which seeks to uh, be an abstraction, something which seeks, uh, as opposed to something which seeks to replicate reality. And there are big <laughs> philosophical questions there. Um, uh, but I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, I think that the, the even the, the uh, relatively simple um, mini-games that mm -hmm. Anaanthropy uses in Dysphoria are tremendously powerful for giving us a, a, a sense of the complex uh, uh, set of thoughts and feelings that she has around that subject matter, which mm -hmm. are very hard to convey in words. Uh, yeah, I, th I think so much of the discussion about games and learning has focused on more cognitive kinds of classroom kinds of learning. But absolutely, I think there's a lot of social learning that takes mm -hmm. place, a lo lot of learning about the self, 
so with regard to you know the self, for instance, identity, I think, uh, for instance, virtual worlds, which are not quite game-like, which are more uh, you know more lifelike, if you like. I think there's some research that has shown that if you take on the avatar of a tall person, you interact differently, and so you know you sort of do. There is some slight transformation in terms of your personality and interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you just think about Facebook, for instance, there's a lot of self-presentation going on, and you know we really don't know to what extent it helps mm-hmm. or hurts identity development. But I think you have some of some of that, and on World of Warcraft and all the other games where you assume avatars, it has to be the same kind of uh, representational distance, psychological distance, if you will, between the self and the avatar. Yeah. And so you have that, and then of course in in the MMO. RPGs, you have collaboration, cooperation when you have to go on certain tasks. So absolutely, I think there's a lot of different kinds of social learning that also takes place. Mm -hmm. You know, one area I think that could be new here, that uh, there's been a lot of literature recently, and this applies mainly to younger children, about so-called non-cognitive skills. That Mm -hmm. is the skill, for example, to have grit, which is to persist past Mm -hmm. failure Mm -hmm. with passion, or to uh, engage with delayed gratification, Mm -hmm. or to accept challenges, be able to put Mm -hmm. up with failure. Interesting enough, for young children, those skills correlate better than IQ with their success in school mm-hmm. and in life. They, mm. they tend to be crucial. And it seems to me the game that many kids learn those, mm-hmm. especially if they're, you know, these skills tend to come with what's called attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of kids Could pick up, ex- attachment that? parenting beings where a parent is putting you into a nurturing situation where it, you feel unstressed enough to take challenge to persist and stuff, and it turns mm-hmm. out to be very crucial to the development of children. But um, games can do that, right? They, can mm-hmm. men- they mm-hmm. are a form of mentoring. They, can, they certainly can encourage delayed gratification. You have to earn stuff in a role-playing right. game. Uh, you have to persist past failure. It, they do generate passion. So I think we're going to see in the future that this could be a really uh, good thing for games to be a way to develop not only problem-solving skills but non-cognitive skills that could change people's outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, no, no, please. Uh, no, no, I moved on. So, oh, okay. Uh, something else, man. <laughs> well, hit me. What, what, were you, what were you thinking? Um, no, I don't, honestly, Chris, I don't know that I had a coherent thought. I'm <laughs> oh, scared to say it out loud. Right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, you know, that's, when I, was, when I was growing up, like, our, our educational games were single player, because we were on mm-hmm. Apple IIcs. This is going right. back a ways. Um, and they were those single player things, mm-hmm. and again, you mm-hmm. think of the math blast or the drill and kill, right, which I right. think are, you know. But it is interesting when, when you get other kids involved, yes. like in this social experience. And do you think, have people been studying this much? Like, that's, that's, it seems like the research, I hear studies, um, there's someone, and I'm blanking on his name, but someone who's done studies on World of Warcraft and how people relate to their avatars or the choices Nikki. they make about uh, oh, Nikki. Yes, Nick E. Um, he was the one who, who found that, like, I think, what was it, like half of guys, mm-hmm. half of male players in yeah. World of Warcraft play as, as women. Right. But it's, in terms of research, like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. there was no way to know why. There was no way to kind of survey them. People have ideas on these kinds of things. Do you think there, there is research on that or that there can be more research? How, how there is a, a body of new but growing research on, uh, on how games are social to kids even mm-hmm. when they're single player. Yeah. Yes. Kids are passing the controller around, they're yes. sharing so strategy, they're doing stuff. 
you know, even games like Pokemon were brilliantly designed oh, yeah. to force you to share mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, the Pokemon from one game to the other. And and so there, people have been very, you know, the prediction in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. is that video games would be isolating. Yes. And in fact, far from it, they've been very socializing. Uh, there's even some growing research that shows that in a classroom, it's often better to have one computer right. for three to five kids than it is one to one. Oh. Because it's more likely this to collaboration yes. around a single screen <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, where you're de dealing uh, with collective intelligence is pretty right. powerful. Yeah, that's right. I think we, we, we tend to emphasize you know, one team, you know, one computer per child, but that may not necessarily mm -hmm. be good all, at all times. And mm -hmm. I think there is research that suggests that video game playing among younger children, the non-online kind of games, they can be uh, a social activity. You know, kids set up mm -hmm. play dates to play games. Mm -hmm. uh, they, and then as they get a little older, they also set up play dates to go online to play games with each mm -hmm. other. So right. absolutely, I think so. Right. And something that we were actually surprised to find when we released the first Uncharted game was um, how many people we heard back from who said that they liked to enjoy the game not just on their own, but in a family group sure. or right. with their um, uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, yes. um, which uh, we, we took as affirmation that we were doing something right with the characterization, with the storytelling, mm -hmm. um, and maybe with the cinematic cameras. But I think this is where games really come to life. I mean, something we were discussing yeah. earlier made me think, I think, it was, I think I heard this first from Eric Zimmerman, the idea that a game, the artifacts of a game are really inert until people mm -hmm. bring them to life, whether mm -hmm. it's a game of shoots and ladders or, mm -hmm. or go. Right. Uh, and I really like this idea. In fact, I think right now we're seeing a bit of a renaissance of um, local multiplayer games. There are all these yeah. terrific games like the Sports Friends right. um, uh, project that's up on Kickstarter mm -hmm. right now, bringing yeah. together games like Hokro, which is a crazy kind of four-player, um, it's kind of like air hockey, hmm. uh, yeah. basketball, yeah. isn't it? A par it's a passing game. Oh, Very good fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and this yeah. other amazing game, Johann Sebastian Joust, mm -hmm. that you play with these Sony... <laughs> Uh, it's a wonderful name for a game, uh, and a terrific game. Uh, you play it with the uh, Sony PlayStation Move controller. It's yeah. a little like the Wiimote, and it has this uh, wonderful glowing sphere on the end. And it's really the old game of uh, Lemon on a Spoon, if anyone's ever played that, where all the players have a, a lemon. Yeah, that one I never played. Uh, I think we did. Lemon on a spoon. Right? Yeah. You've never played lemon no, on a spoon? No, I can't even imagine I'm what you do with that. the lemon. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll dispel any uh, mystery around. It's one of the simplest games in the world. Everyone has a lemon on a wooden spoon, and the idea is to be the last person with a lemon still on the spoon. So you have to kind of push your friends to bodge their arm to make the lemon fall off. And you can imagine this uh, in a, you know, with this digital technology where the, the ball glows red when the controller is moving too fast and it's played to a, um, a musical score oh. of uh, oh. Johann Sebastian oh, Bach oh. and oh. the music <laughs> speeds up and slows down to <laughs> tell you how fast you're allowed to move this controller so you know this is a, an, another wonderful game using this very energetic boundary between um, technology whether it's a a spoon, a wooden spoon, uh, or this digital technology, and the spaces of human play where games really happen, you know, in the relationships between human beings. That's, yeah, that's a wonderful one. And um, I like, I like the, the, the designer that Doug Wilson talking about folk games and games that have evolved and uh, over time and people 
make up their own rules and things like that. And yeah. it's such yeah. a, yes. such a, you know, like you were saying, such yeah. a culture around that. I mean, one of the most significant games lately, I would say has to be Minecraft. Sure. And when mm -hmm. it first came out, I think there were kind of the indie game community that people were kind of in on things. We're like, oh, you got to check this thing out. This is amazing. And then all of a sudden I would go to the, like my local library and there were like 10 year olds and 13 year olds playing it. And uh, which they never played other hipster indie games. I was like, what's going on here? And all of a sudden now, it's like every kid is obsessed with this game. And uh, I have, has any, are, how many people are familiar with it have heard of Minecraft? Oh, that's a good show. Yeah, yeah it's, it's for those who haven't, it's a little like if Legos were, if your computer was just, if you could just go into a world completely made of Legos, you're in a landscape that's generated from scratch every single time. It's never the same. And um, it's a rolling green landscape with deserts and seas. Oceans. Yeah. And sometimes it's snowing, and sometimes there's like a duck, and every time you go in, it's just this magic experience. But what's interesting about it is the world is like com completely malleable. Like you can you can chop down trees, you can pick up rocks, you can start building things, and then you build bigger things, and then you dig farther into the ground, and you're digging, and all of a sudden there's a cave. And it's again, it's a system yeah. that just pulls you in, and it's always so different. You're just always probing and seeing all the new things it'll do, but at the same time, it's. It's just, it's just, he just hit that, uh, the creator just hit the sweet spot with it of, of it just being so fascinating, it's so simple. And people mod it, people set up their own servers, so their own communities where you'll go into your friend's server and play with them and make stuff or do whatever. Um, so people are getting all, the kids are getting all these technical skills to be able to set this up. Uh, whereas in the 90s, it would probably be Quake mods or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's part of a, a trend that's gone over the last few years where uh, people have gone from games to designing themselves, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. to modding. I mean, this is why Will Wright's games like uh, The Sims and Spore have sold so well, as he unleashes people's creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Minecraft did that for, for people. And you, you, you're, you're shocked that your seven-year-old can build an analog computer in the game. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're always shocked to see how smart people are when you give them good tools for creativity. And it's something that we do less and less in society, especially when mm -hmm. so much work is deadening. Mm -hmm. um, and now, uh, you know, there's just innumerable products where kids want to design games or want to do the design themselves. So the, does this mean you would say that if you're doing the higher, more interest-driven uses, the more interest, you know, the modding, the building, is that when you're more likely to get to the, you know, actually achieve, make those learning games? I've games? always thought of a modding attitude as the higher value in of gaming. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just building the mod, think so. it's thinking like a designer, it's asking how you can hack the world, mm -hmm. how you can get emergent properties. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, uh, modding for books, I mean, you know, the same thing applied, but uh, games just take it much further because they put the tool, you know, if you think about it, with traditional literacy, uh, there's always been many few writers than readers, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and with video games, and even now with the fab movement, if you're aware of that, uh, we are getting to the point where many more people well, can be you... producers than consumers. What, what's the, when does that move? The fab movement is where you can now print either through adding stuff or extracting it, uh, real objects. And you oh, can yeah. go, it's between bit, you can go to, effortlessly between bits and atoms. So mm -hmm. today you can print houses. There's two ways to do oh, it. Yeah. You can also print skin. And they're, they're, the next thing is to try to print organs. You can print any, you can print nano stuff. This is all over YouTube. If you look at mm -hmm. the uh, um, 
Neil Gershenfeld at MIT has been with the Fab Lab there has been big. Mm -hmm. But you know, think about a, and also of course you can take objects out of the world and do uh, reality capture and then customize them, change them, and put them back in the world. You can go effortlessly between bits and atoms. And this is a world then where, I mean, I think it's the next stage plasmoding, right? We're getting to a, a world where more people can be producers mm -hmm. than ever, and they don't have to just be consumers. And that really, I think, is a revolutionary change in a society where most people are told to just be spectators or to work at Walmart or do stuff. And then you can go home and you can print your liver. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'd still rather buy my liver, but I understand. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I love that uh, modding has come up mm -hmm. because, of course, many great game designers um, started their lives making mods oh, for right. their favorite game. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, games are including um, you know, a, a level design tool which is oriented towards the skills that players have. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, we see some amazing work. Little Big Planet is a, a terrific yeah, game yeah. for the PlayStation 3. That uh, this is the the essential characteristic of the game. It's not so much a game to play; it's a game in which you make games. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah, and, and um, Sony especially, like, there's a line of the like they seem to really be pushing this, and like Sound Shapes even, which is a much uh -huh. simpler 2D platform. It's a wonderful game, uh, kind of a music game really encouraging that sharing levels and encouraging creativity. I mean, it, it kind of gets to something I think you were saying a minute ago that um, you said something actually a week ago about that it's more like a new paradigm. Like when we're talking about transferring skills, so again, you go to the old drill and kill math blaster yeah. model, your whole goal is like, all right, well, they're going to be taking a math test, so we have to have a game that helps them pass that test. And I think sort of what we're getting at is that maybe the issue is to change the test, to have a different test, a different right. paradigm. Well, games are, you know, one of the things that educators have become very interested in them is they're, they're, they offer a radically different model of assessment. If you think about it, the way we think of assessment is a test that drops out of the sky on you a Tuesday at four, <laughs> uh, and you get a one score. But on the other hand, if you're a Halo player and you want to share your data, there can, the company can collect... Uh, hundreds of points of data on thousands of players mm -hmm. and feedback uh, on multiple variables what you've done across time and how you compare with mm -hmm. millions of other players. If you play any real-time strategy game like Rise of Nations, what do you get at the end? 40 charts that show you on dozens of variables what you did against every other player. Now think about it. If, in an age where we can offer you assessment as mm -hmm. copious information across much time compared to millions of other people on 20 variables so that you can get better, or a drop out of the sky test from Illinois, mm -hmm. what are we going to get? What is an parent going to want? And uh, so essentially our whole notion of how to assess people is dead. Mm -hmm. Good. Good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. well, there's a business opportunity there for people to put the testing industry out of business. It'll be a <laughs> limitlessly good thing. But you know, getting to the idea of modding and changing the paradigm, I think Yasmin Kafai, when she was at UCLA, did some work where she actually had uh, students in classroom design games as as a means. I think it was mm -hmm. to teach fractions or something. And and you know, the kids that did successfully do that did actually learn a lot about fractions. So, mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that I know in my conversations with her is that you do have to have. You know, this was done at the UCLA Lab School with. Mm -hmm you know, dedicated teachers and parents were willing to take a chance. I think, mm -hmm. you know, that's the real, I mean, you do need a gifted teacher, if you will, who understands the technology to be able to harness its power in right. the classroom. 
And in actual fact, I think that um, uh, some of the things that I now do as a game designer, mm -hmm. I got from um, the, my mm -hmm. gifted teachers who, uh, you know, if, if there's a, a sequence in a game where I'm trying to teach the player a new ability mm -hmm. uh, and I can give them the ability and yeah. tell them which button to press to activate it mm -hmm. and then present them with a situation in the game world in which they can use it and experiment with it. Um, quite often a big game design challenge is to get people through that situation mm -hmm. um, because of course we're all intelligent in different ways, you know, mm -hmm. who knows how many different kinds of intelligence there are, seven or more, <laughs> and everyone brings their own unique uh, set of strengths and weaknesses <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to a situation mm -hmm. like this. And so I, uh, and, and actually this is very present in my mind now that I'm working with young game designers mm -hmm. at USC, the way that the game itself can present all of this information, but then we'll often have to take note of what the player is doing uh, mm -hmm. and present the information again, perhaps in a different way uh, that you know, sheds uh, a, an appropriate kind of light on the skills, uh, on the situation for that, for that person. Mm -hmm. um, you have to think that way. I'd love to see more, like, yeah, kids learning. Like, that's such an interesting skill to have to think about all these different types of players. And but it'd be, I, I'd like the kids to get a modding attitude for not just games. If, right. if yes. they, they should be able to mod their curriculum. Imagine the day where the kid says to the teacher the way a, a World of Warcraft player says, you know, I can do this better, so let's, let's get together and make a better science curriculum. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, it would, if they if they could do complaints the way the World of Warcraft people do, they they wouldn't need the teacher. So, I mean, I, I think that that it's the attitude that you know you're going to be a producer. You're going you know, if games are designed experience, we can design all sorts of experiences for mm -hmm. people to liberate them and to get them. To, and as you say, the borderline between play goes across games to all sorts of experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and a classroom, I actually think of a teacher and a game designer is very similar. They're both designing experiences that liberate people to learn, mm -hmm. and they share mm -hmm. principles, and hopefully there will be a lot more crosstalk between these enterprises. We're, we're going to be going to question and answer in a couple minutes. I wondered um, maybe if you had almost like a closing thought or, or maybe a challenge that you think we have to overcome or the next thing we th you think we need to work on to improve this. First. Well, I think maybe how do we get more kids to be doing some of these higher level modding and higher level playing to get mm -hmm. more six, more kids, if you will, um, the opportunity to engage in this kind of learning. To me, that would be the big mm -hmm. question because it seems to me there are pockets of youth doing this and you know that's very different from how the majority of youth might be playing games. Yeah. How do you get them to shift to that, that path would be for me the big question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, one of my hopes is that, uh, and I think this happens naturally already, mm -hmm. is uh, the current generation of parents themselves grew up playing right. video games. And I think you're going to, yes. But I think one great way for parents to dispel their fears about video games are to play them with their children mm -hmm. and yes. see yes. Um, what kinds of Absolutely. things they have mm -hmm. to offer. Right, that's an excellent point. Cool. Yeah, I mean, along the lines that have been said already, that, you know, with traditional literacy, with books, we mm -hmm. created a huge equity gap, right? We know mm -hmm. that poor kids learn to read much less well. They have... Lower levels of literacy, they get less good jobs, and we replicate a social structure through that. And the real issue is with digital literacies, games are only one of them. Mm -hmm. Are we going to do that again? We are currently doing it. Mm -hmm. Higher end modding, we do beginning to know, is restricted more to privileged kids. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to be. So now it really becomes a social choice. As we have, are we going to have a school mm -hmm. system, for example, that allows really complex thinking to go on for the rich, but skill and drill to go on for the poor? Or are we going to use digital technologies and production 
stuff like games and fab labs to um, finally get rid of these equity gaps. And that's a social choice. Mm -hmm. um, and in a, you know our society today has the highest level of inequality it's ever had. And we have, uh, you know, we've virtually eradicated living wages for many jobs. So this issue of how these technologies can give rise to resourcing people's creativity and like letting them count in society, I think is a cutting edge issue for our future. And I think his point about parents having grown up playing games, and I think teach, as we have more teachers who grew up playing games, right. I think hopefully you'll see a sea shift in how they incorporate games into their teaching. Mm -hmm. So. I, I have a seven, yeah, I have a seven-year-old, and we always play games together. And it right. is, it's, it's much, it, it's just an amazing thing, and to see the things that they that he gets stuck on, or the things he tries to do and experiments with, and it right. is amazing. But I'm sometimes he's a better influence than me. He has more grit. Sure. I'll give up on <laughs> a really difficult <laughs> level, and he'll stick with it. But then I sometimes find myself being too rigid. I'm like, no, no, don't, don't shoot the ceiling. I know. Who wants to just try it? Phil Olivelle, USC Entertainment Technology Center. So um, you've got uh, Coursera, Udacity, edX out there all developing what they claim to be interactive learning experiences for online teaching. Are they, can you just comment on whether or not they're using gaming aesthetics in some of their designs? Game designers are masters at creating interfaces that work. Right? And so much of the e-learning is just a translation of what we already do. You know, lectures, talking heads and stuff. It amazes me how little it has been deeply revolutionized by what we know about how to make interactive stuff. And I, I don't know why that is. Maybe he knows why it is. So. <laughs> yes, I'm not familiar with those projects, unfortunately, but uh, they sound interesting. I'd like to hear more about them. I work in energy efficiency. And we're trying to do an experiment where we're trying to reach people who do this social gaming. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, um, I guess uh, moms who stay at home and they play these games. So we're trying to give them this virtual currency as rewards mm -hmm. if they take a, an energy efficiency action. Mm -hmm. But I would like to know from the panel, is there something even better way that we can approach people who are hard to reach to take actions to improve energy efficiency? Well, as a game designer, my mind immediately goes in 90 different directions, <laughs> of course. I think that you know, things like virtual currency can be a part of the solution, um, but I would want to think more in terms of the, the whole. The, uh, uh, at the end of the day, um, how fun is the game is, right. is one of the most important questions. Uh, sometimes defining fun can be a little tricky. Um, uh, and also, how does it map to the reality of uh, people's lives? So uh, uh, my mind immediately went, since we were talking about mm. systems theory earlier, uh, to um, uh, a great book that I recently read, Thinking in Systems by Donna Meadows, where she talks actually about uh, um, some research that was done in Scandinavia around energy efficiency in the home. Uh, uh, where there were, there were two sets of homes, one of which had the electricity meter in the basement and the other had it by the front door. Uh, and they found that in the homes uh, where the meter was by the front door, where people would see it every day, those homes were much more efficient uh, really? in, in terms of yeah. Yeah, their electricity I think that, you know, This brings up what we didn't talk about, gamification. That is where you take everyday activities and you try to use design principles right. from games yeah. to motivate people. 
And one thing that's just struck me is that if you look at um, these electric cars that have this nice yeah. representation, we're doing people make a game out of it. So I mean, I yes. think what you, if you, if you can represent to people what they're doing, mm -hmm. what impact it's having, and in a way right. that they can compare it mm -hmm. with others. Plus, uh, there is, by the way, literature that if they, if you get them to say they want to be more inter to write it, to be commit to it, uh, they'll do it oh. more. Oh, but then, just it, I think bringing these representations that can be gamed, it can be a very, very deep part of gamification. So maybe if there was a game as simple as turning the lights off before right. we go out, right. that might have an impact yeah. on people's. As lives. long as you see what it does to the representation. These people, have you yeah. seen with these? What are those cars that the the oh, the um, uh, they, they have this beautiful representation yeah. of all, cars? and people try to outdo each other to see who can get yeah. the least gas or the least uh, oh, stuff. Nike has done the same the, thing, you know, they yeah, represent, yeah. if they give ways to represent how much you've right. run and what you've done, I, and then people begin to play, even game themselves in it. There's something about letting people physically, <laughs> visually see the impact they're having, especially if they've committed to change, mm -hmm. that can be very effective. And also to, I think, compare, like, you know, mm -hmm. again, yes. I think one of comparing, you said, comparing right, yeah. with other people in that game world, you know, have a bar or something, you know, yeah. you're all competitive, even if it comes to be, you know, you being, being energy neighbor. efficient. Absolutely. <laughs> your neighbor's the worst on the block, right, the right. shame kicks the in. Shame. Shame My blue always, can is always, always full. So. At the end of last year and the beginning of this year, there was a lot of media about how corporate brainstorming was inefficient, was fallacious. But when I heard you talk about putting a computer in front of five kids to solve a problem, it seems like that actually was brainstorming in effect. But is that because you're able to control the environment in gaming and gaming to get the solutions? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the disconnect, why it works with kids, but it there, doesn't work The with thing adults. about the brainstorming is that we kind of, some of the rules we assume for it don't work. Like, for example, people will say there's a common method, that no criticism only make positive remarks. Turns out that doesn't actually work. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to get people to, at all, there's a lot of other features. So I think what that literature really showed is it's complicated to get brainstorming to work. You've got to do it right. Or to get collaboration to work. People won't collaborate just because you put them together. Right. But if the, if the computer is there with a structured task and feedback, and often where people have roles or take mm -hmm. on roles, then you can get very powerful uh, results. Although it does turn out that the, and this is true of workshops, the ability to give and get criticism is crucial. And humans are not good at that until you create a context in which they, they know how to do it. That's why this rule of be positive and nice, which leads to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Jay Christensen. And I've been a gamer, board gamer, for at least 30 years. Oh, nice. And oh, so my question <laughs> is about uh, board games and video games. Mm -hmm. I want to ask the panel what they think about the impact of board games on video games followed by the uh, concomitant question that uh, do they see that uh, video games are going to drive out board games? Well, what a wonderful question. I'm, as you can tell, I'm excited yes. to answer it. Uh, my game designer friends and I are two big board game fans. You know, we play board games from all around the world. Board games are very big in Europe. They're very... Uh, right, and very many famous uh, German game designers. So, uh, uh, and that we've seen lots of games, video games recently, that are conversions mm -hmm. of board games that replicate the little wooden pieces and right. the cardboard boards and the cards. <laughs> so uh, I love these games.
games, and we use them, in fact, in the classroom to teach the principles of game design, um, because it's much uh, quicker often to uh, write some numbers on some blank playing cards and prototype a game that way than it is to write all the complex, complex lines of computer code that we need to do. So, uh, uh, yes, um, I love board games, and, uh, and I don't think they're going away at right, all. No, no, I think that, in fact, we'll probably see wonderful new board games that incorporate clever little bits of digital technology uh, as digital computing right. mm -hmm. kind of goes back yes. beneath the surface mm -hmm. of day-to-day -day yeah, life and smart objects. Mm -hmm. Words yeah, with Friends has like a board game version, I think. I've been, Does it really? I've just oh, well. been seeing some ads on TV. It goes both ways. Yeah, games so, have been made in so board. Yeah, so I think I there's think a so. renaissance of board games, really. Aaron Vanek, I'm with uh, Seekers Unlimited, and it's a uh, company that we design educational uh, live-action role-playing games for kids. And it's very related to that question. How do you guys feel about uh, role-playing games, such as Dungeons and & Dragons and some of those other ones, and especially the educational uh, uh, possibilities for that? I think it has a lot of potential, actually, because, um, you know, when I mean, you look at virtual world, you know, like Wyville and Club Penguin for, for kids, I mean, they're pretty constrained, uh, but they certainly seem popular with children, young children. Uh, it seems to be giving them opportunities for interaction in a more constrained setting. So I think that would be the big question from a parenting perspective in terms of having it in a constrained situation. But I do think that if you can, I think the only concern I would have is that if you look at adult role-playing games, there's a lot of aggression, player killing, and PKK, and all of that. I think if you can somehow figure out a way to control that, but I don't know when you control that if you take away some of the inherent elements of these games. But I do think especially uh, in terms of the collaborate, you know, especially teaching them to collaborate and even compete and compete in a, you know, socially positive way, if you will, towards achieving the common goal, I think they have a lot of potential for children. I wish there would be more because I think the games that are out there are very constraining. So I think, I, I think there's a lot of potential there. You mentioned something about uh, gamification, uh, and I wanted to ask you uh, what you think the impact is of mobile apps uh, such as Foursquare, where you can unlock achievements for just completing mundane tasks in the real world. I wanted to ask what you thought about that. Gamification is a real double-edged sword. Um, it, it is connected in one part to the sort of microfinancing trend, the ability to sort of manipulate people uh, in ways, you know, the pe workplace, the, the gamification has been very big in workplaces. And on the one hand, you can see people will say it's going to empower the worker, it's going to make boring work more fun mm -hmm. or challenging work more fun, but it also lets the employer surveil the workers better. It can sometimes dupe a worker instead of asking for a raise, you know, you're now having fun. Um, I think that it, it, it's one of these things, and it's true of all good technologies. They can be used for evil or bad. Right. So good gamification or can be trivial or evil, or it can be very good. And it's very difficult to do it, right? And, and it, gamification is a weird combination. It's got game design principles in it, but it also comes from the old principles of how to manipulate people, customer loyalty and stuff. This is not making up. You look at Gabe Zeichermann's site, a big gamification guy, he's quite overt that it is the combination of design and manipulation. But that's not bad, but it means that it raises some really profound, interesting ethical questions. I've just got to say on Foursquare that um, so I've often talked to people about that, like whether it's really a game, because it seems like a game in so many ways, and at the same time, it's, it's sort of missing some essential quality, and I think that's, one, the kind of imagination, right? It doesn't have that kind of feeling of a magic circle, of the, that there's some imaginative quality that you're buying into when you're going through this experience. It's just, it just is what it is. I went and got my coffee today, ding. 
And the other is that there really isn't that intrinsic goal to it. I guess sometimes if you're using it for discovery or you're using it to see what your friends are doing, there is that element, but that doesn't seem like what people, that isn't what drives the compulsion. And so that, you know, I used it briefly. I was the mayor of my coffee shop. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> then I kind of got it out of my system, and I think it is because it doesn't have those, those greater qualities yeah. to it. It's the, just more the, about the compulsion. The, I do think it points in an interesting direction, though. I mean, there are certainly lots of games that are experimenting with these the, the locative possibi possibilities of technology. Yeah. And I think we'll see some interesting work in the uh, next few years. There was, there's already a bunch of good Frank stuff. Frank Lance, who's a great game designer, made... Um, a gamification called Making Money for Macon, Georgia, to try to get people, you know, from different uh -huh. races and classes who won't deal with each any other, each other anymore, and their downtown space right. has died. And he has this gamification of a currency that requires collaboration and stuff. And it's mm. really you can Google it, and it worked very well. And it's a really, really Making Money for Macon, Georgia, though not make, you know, like. It's called right. Macon, Georgia. -C yeah, and it's 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 a really good example of a of a thing that uh, got a public square back. Right, mm -hmm. what's happened in a lot of America is the public sphere is gone. Mm -hmm. People don't come across diversity to communicate. We're in our niches and silos, and he did a thing that brought those people together. So it's a, that's a very good use of it. Um, I think you've said a lot of positive things about how functionally games can help kids develop, but in the back of my head, I have the question about given that a lot of what kids are actually playing with, when they're not playing Civilization or SimCity, they end up doing some pretty horrible things. So what does your research say about how that balances out? I mean, the, can you clarify what you mean by they're doing pretty... You mean violence? violence? Uh, yes, I mean people being, or not people, characters being ripped limb from limb by kids playing a game who may be increasing their cognitive skills, and I've certainly enjoyed playing those games, but I have this concern about that, and I wonder what, from an academic point of view, what the research says about that. Well, we don't have a lot of research on video game, vi I mean, online gaming violence and kids. There is some, there's a lot of research on video game violence in children, but mm. you know, a lot of it is lab-based research, and you know, there are people who always question uh, the effect sizes, but I don't know if we wanted to get into uh, this I, you know, it's an enormous subject, right. and of course it's always a very hot button topic. Right. I mean, right. I think that I can certainly tell you there's a lot of discussion uh, right. in the, in, uh, the of the topic uh, in the game development circles, certainly that I yeah. travel in, and I think that uh, like any creators of media, we have to balance our, our um, you know, our artistic integrity with, our, you know, sometimes we might have a commercial desire to appeal to prurient interest of one kind or another. So I think that, that you know, uh, certainly it's a subject that's worthy of a very great deal of investigation. Right. But right. I mean, it's small, uh, taking a game like Grand Theft Auto, which is a great game, it's not one that children should be playing, more, right. maybe more than they should be reading violent books. But there are other, other games that have similar properties. It, the, the, best, uh, the violence issue, of course, has got mounds of stuff on it, but there's a book called Grand Theft Childhood written by some doctors at Harvard that I think is the best book on violence in video games, and I really think it puts the issue to bed. And it's just what you'd expect, is that 
Uh, you know, there's a role for parents, and right. there's good and bad things, and you probably don't want kids who are already violent playing violent video exactly. games, but um, it puts it in real perspective. I think it's really the best book on this topic. And just to point out, even Hansel and Gretel was very violent and pretty graphic, so, so I mean, really you go back to fairy tales and you have a lot of violence, so I think yeah, that's, that that's the thing to keep in mind. Up. I'll just say, though, too, really quick, as, a, as the father of a seven-year-old, I mean, the ratings are on the box, and yeah. I, I kind of lose patience with parents who don't check exactly. those. And you can say, oh, your neighbors doesn't pay attention. But you, you can tell them, like, if the parents are engaged enough, if you have an E or an E10 game, it's, there's not going to be problematic content. And I just wish there was more awareness. I feel like a lot of parents don't even really understand what those ratings are. So Yeah. I mean, question over here on your left. Hi. Dean Levengood. Uh, I'm a middle school and high school teacher. And I've been wondering, how can gaming co companies and education sort of meet? They they sort of circle each other again and again, sort of waiting for the other person to reach out the hand, and, and neither of them is quite doing it yet. How can we get them to meet up? Well, there's one great initiative, uh, jumping off the fact that Chris brought up Minecraft. I think it's minecraft.edu, is it? But certainly yeah. it's a collaboration between the people who make Minecraft and uh, educators. Um, uh, and one person who's uh, uh, a big figure in that scene is Joel Levin, who is a, uh, I want to say he's either a middle, I think he's a middle school teacher uh, in uh, New York City, and he uses Minecraft uh, weekly in his classrooms uh, to uh, come at a whole bunch of different issues with his kids, from um, spatial reasoning to, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, looking at the social uh, uh, relationships between the kids and, you know, coaching them there. So that's just one and place And Portal has released a whole bunch right. of teacher material where they're designing very good stuff. There's also just beginning to be companies that are beginning to meld designers and learning people. Microsoft has opened up an education unit and has got people now designated as learning game designers. They're not, they're actually designing the learning stuff into it, and that's kind of a new thing. It's a company like Filament in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, which makes the iCivics games, the games for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor that are in about all 50 states. They are, they're young game designers, but there's learning people there. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that, uh, where there's uh, learning people are going to have to learn about yeah. design, and design people are going to have to learn about learning. I think schools might also have to have, as you said, a bit of a paradigm shift and open up to games because, you know, the first thing that schools do is to cut off access to technology and, you know, access to sites. I mean, there's, you know, access to the web and some of the great things that kids can do collaboratively to search for information. And so I think that, that shift has to also happen from within schools. But I suspect that as more, peop, you know, gamers become teachers, hopefully you'll see that shift in the next few years, I think. I, I will, it is tough, though. It, in, it, I think you are seeing that there has been like an institutional reason that basically, right. really simply one, that games have to, to be educational, they have to go through assessment. You have to actually be able to prove results right. out of them, and that's a constraint that, you know, you're talking about the Google test in Uncharted, like you could have these rich experiences, you could learn about Marco Polo, you can learn about these things, but like if you can't test that, then no one's, right. no state mm -hmm. is going to mm -hmm. give you right. money Access for it, to it right, right now. But maybe if we can move away from, from those strictures, and then the other is just textbook publishing, it's just sort of this nightmare pipeline of how things mm -hmm. actually get approved and how a CD-ROM might end up in a book. And so again, if we can completely change that, right. then it opens up. But the two ways that is changing and will change, I think, very quickly now is one is people are beginning to ask for educational games that they have stealth assessment in them. That is, they don't have a test at all the right. end. They assess all the time. 
and games, of course, are always assessing. But the other mm -hmm. thing is school districts are now demanding digital text because the published ones are too expensive. State after, and that, once you have putting into schools digital text, you put in a thing that's media. It's not really a textbook, it's media. And that's gonna open the gate mm -hmm. in a way that has never happened before for media, including games, to get in. In fact, right now there is a vast shortage of curriculum content for the curriculum on the digital text on pads and all sorts of companies that want to curate and aggregate it. Um, uh, that are even licensing free stuff, that, like some of the iCivic stuff, most of it is free, but aggregators are now paying fees to use it because there's so little content. So this is a really exciting time if people want to make content of that media nature for digital text. Zocalo had a program uh, earlier this year which consisted of the um, game designer uh, Jane McGonigal, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. who gave a fascinating talk. And you haven't quite touched on what it is she does, which is look at large-scale, real-world problems mm -hmm. and create games for yes. limited periods of time uh, to bring problem-solving of large groups of people to bear. And I'm just curious on uh, your take on that. Although Jane is an example of gamification, so we've already talked about the fact that it, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but there is a, you know, this movement with, how many people know about Folded or Galaxy Zoo in these places? I mean, you've got these situations where everyday people play a game-like thing, but where they're actually contributing to knowledge. So in Folded, you fold proteins, you use a 3D thing, and you try to discover out of the billion possible folds the one with the lowest energy state, which is the one the protein will have its effect by. And players of that game have published twice, I think, in either Nature or Science. They have, uh, in one contest with the scientists, they won seven of the top ten slots. And um, they recently discovered a protein that helps cause AIDS that has been looked for for 20 years. A galaxy Zoo, that isn't really a game, but it's game-like, and people have discovered whole new galaxies that even astronomers didn't know about. So there's certainly great potential. Uh, to do that. I must say one time in a talk at Wisconsin when this question came up about Jane and I made a comment about her which I've not made here and I, I respect and like her, um, I got a text message during the talk from her so I'm, I'm going to leave off that. <laughs> we, I, I will mention one, I mean with her experience in alternate reality games that kind of crowd, bringing a crowd together to solve a problem, mm -hmm. um, you know she was in pretty early with that and has done a lot of great work on that and one thing i've seen in a lot of her projects too is that there's almost like a creative writing component to it um she was involved in world without oil which was really a creative mm -hmm. writing exercise of imagining a world where you've hit peak oil and people it wasn't like clicking buttons it wasn't a playing a game it was like almost more like you'd have to write and file these reports of your imagination of how this would play out. And I think that's a really, to have that kind of creative exercise but structured, which kind of helps make it happen, I thought it was a really neat thing to pursue. I think the key thing is how you get ownership of it though. I mean, if you play a game on the oil thing and it ends and you haven't become kind of addicted to that, then the effect is smaller. And what's interesting about things like uh, Folded is a certain group of people, it becomes a really central part of their contribution. Uh, there's wonderful YouTube videos where people who play it say, you know, look, I have this service job. People don't treat me like a knower. 
I go home and this is my contribution. Yeah. I can, and I think this is a really important part of the 21st century where people can contribute out of their job and out of school, and schools yeah. should train them to do that so everybody's a contributor. Things like Wikipedia yeah. right. uh, represent the same impulse. Mm -hmm. Collective yeah. Yeah, contribution. The question that I have is around these new initiatives of digital badges or micro-credentialing, which are essentially, uh, in a simple way, uh, ways to formalize recognition for uh, skill development or learning, whatever that m might wind up being, um, for things that happen in uh, informalized contexts, so whether both uh, digital and analog context. And the hope is that this can provide some instrumental capital um, to get scholarships or jobs or all sorts of different things beyond a resume or a diploma, because it can uh, show a more fine-grained uh, picture of what someone, is, what they can do excuse me, what they can do or um, kind of who they are as a person. Um, so the question is, I guess, what uh, potential you see there is or is not for this kind of thing, and what are some possible constraints or opportunities that we should be thinking about if we go down that road? The MacArthur Foundation, which has funded mm -hmm. a lot of the work in digital media, has gotten through with Mozilla, has funded some of the bad stuff. And its original purpose was, as you just said, to first of all credential kids for what they do out of school mm -hmm. that might be very deep and they can't get credit for it. Right, it's also to have an alternative way mm -hmm. for a person to put together a portfolio or something that, mm -hmm. that can trump the traditional certificates and grades and tests. Uh, and at that point, it's got a very good social goals, but you can see, it, like gamification, it can be a double-edged sword. One of the reasons we want it is because we feel that in school we're not assessing the right stuff, right? Certain kids who are really brilliant, let's say, at hacking, aren't getting good grades. And we've dumbed down the grading system. We've got, you know, grade inflation. So we want to remedy that, but that system, it, the core to that system is who's going to validate the badges. Because if it just becomes right. uh, dumbed down again, or if it becomes that we're not measuring the right things, or we're only doing the same people, we'll just create another bad system. And so the tension, is a real tension there. And I see both really good stuff going on with badges, and then really bad stuff where, mm -hmm. you know, here's a badge as long as you gave me the microfinancing for your five bucks, here's your badge, yeah. right? So it's always how do you keep people honest, right? I think it's the scaling up is the question, you know, when you make it more large scale, yeah, yeah, how, how do you maintain the integrity, I think, is the question. But yeah, I think the interest, the, the MacArthur Foundation work on the interest-driven communities is a good example yeah, of right. youth doing anime as a passion, finding jobs. So, and I think th that's where some of this is coming from. So, mm -hmm. Yes, I, I always think of badges um, uh, and those kinds of things as uh, souvenirs. Right. Uh, but as a game designer, I want to look beyond the souvenir to the lived experience that it, that it represents. Uh, and I think that, yeah, mm -hmm. that kind of focus will help us find the right path through these complex issues. Thank you so much.